Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you all. My name is Johnny. I am Emerita Karis, part of Grace Church. Haven't for those of you who I haven't met before, um, and it's lovely to see lots of faces that I, I don't know. So welcome. It's so good to have you with us here this morning. Um, we're continuing um, uh, like a basically a two-part series that we've done, just looking at the the Easter story. Um, so last week. Um, Thomas started us off by looking at the, uh, the denial of Jesus by Peter and so how all of the disciples said that they were going to basically stick with Jesus while he was taken and was crucified and then basically Peter goes over the top in saying like, actually yeah, I'm really going to be with you and then actually it turns out that all of them then run away. Peter denies Jesus three times and so the guy up here die who is um, yeah in this poem poem I'm not quite sure what you'd call it spoken word um yeah is then peter and is explaining kind of the story that we're going to be looking at today we're going to be looking this morning at the new life that we have got in jesus we're basically going to be asking the question well why is easter sunday why is celebrating the resurrection of jesus so important for us as christians why is it such good news and actually basically my my point today is just going to be looking at the new life that we have because of the new life that jesus has um, life, I'd say if you could kind of boil down to what, how we live our lives, what it means for us to be human. So much of it is us just pursuing life. All of us want abundant life, life to the full. You don't meet anyone who says, actually, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not really interested in, in maximizing my happiness. That is how we live as human beings. Um, and advertising companies and who, people who sell stuff know this because that's why they hack into our desire for abundant life. We're staying with my, um, my in-laws over the weekend. Um, in Woking and so yesterday we went to the Mercedes we went to Mercedes-Benz world and so they had a free day where you could basically go and look around the whole place it was brilliant I was thinking like Mercedes if you think all right that putting on a free day where I can come and look at all of the wonderful Mercedes cars that you've got is going to convince me to make my next car a Mercedes then you have succeeded Um, you basically like go around and they've got like some of the F1 cars um, and they've got some classic Mercedes which were just lovely as well and then basically as you're going around they've got all these lovely flashy cars and then um, if the if the window is down you can basically open them and get inside and like have a little play with the radio and yeah, imagine that you're there driving them. And there is just part of me, I didn't used to be very interested in cars. I've only been driving for about three years. But there was part of me which just got into like one of the behind the wheel of a couple of these Mercedes and thinking, God, this would be lovely, wouldn't it? Super really nice. Some of you have got Mercedes and you don't realize how lucky you are. Um, just getting into a car and it simultaneously thinking, God, this would be a lovely car to have. But then also thinking, too, after a month, it would still just be covered in yogurt and there'd be like food all over the floor. And also I would never be able to afford it as well. Um, but the point is that, that we get that feeling, don't we, with uh, whether it's cars, whether it's books, whether it's um, TV shows, whether it's food, whether it's just time with other people. We're always hungry for life. This is what we want. We, um, you can try and encourage people to think that, um, that they're going to achieve life by buying things, by having a nice new Mercedes, etc. Or you can actually encourage people and, and persuade people that actually the way that they're going to get life is by not having things. One of our favorite TV programs is Sort Your Life Out, um, which is hosted by Stacey Solomon. If you've not seen it, you need to go and see it, all right? It's on iPlayer and it's just fantastic. She basically goes into, into the homes and houses of families who've basically just got loads of, loads of stuff, too much stuff to fit in the house. 
And then they basically go through this seven-day procedure where they pack everything up, put it out in a great big warehouse so they can see all of the like, thousands of possessions that they've got. And they didn't realize that they'd got like 250 hairbrushes between them or something like that. And so they're shocked. Um, and then they basically go through and they've got to go and basically cut out at least 50% of their stuff. And then while do they're doing that, there's these other people who are doing up their house nicely and... Um, up, what's it called, upcycling things, and then they go and put all of these new possessions in their house, and it's lovely, and they're all in tears. Um, but we can also believe then the truth. Well, actually, the thing, the way that I'm going to get new life is by not having things. And actually, the point is whether we're looking to possessions to make us happy and give us that abundant life, or whether we're looking to a lack of possessions to make us happy and give us abundant life, we're doing a massive exercise in missing the point, aren't we? Actually, the truth and the wonderful news of Easter Sunday is that there is abundant life available for all of us. And if our faith is in Jesus and we are a Christian, then we have this new abundant life. Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full. Um, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. In John 1, first chapter of the book that we're going to be looking at this morning, um, it says, in him, the, the word or Jesus, there was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The wonderful news is that Jesus' death and resurrection means that we have also, if we have put our faith in Jesus, experienced a death and resurrection. Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 3 to 4 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we saw on Good Friday, baptisms took place. We baptized Lily and Isaac. And listen, if you've been baptized, whether your baptism was last year or whether it was so long ago that you barely remember it and it was when TV was black and white, the thing is, what happened to you then is you were united in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we dunk people into the water, and then what is symbolically and spiritually happening to them as they are dunked beneath the waters, that they are dying with Jesus. Just as Jesus on Good Friday was taken and placed into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, we are also placed in a tomb. And actually our old self, our old sinful, selfish selves are then put to death with Jesus. And then as we come up out of the water, it's like we're coming out of the empty tomb with Jesus. The new life that he's experiencing means new life for us. And it also means new life for Peter as well. We saw last Sunday that Peter majorly messes up. And messes up is not really the way to say it. He, he lies to his, his best friend, Jesus, his, his savior. He calls curses down probably a, a, upon Jesus as a way of just distancing himself from this person who has given so much for him. But the good news of Easter Sunday for Peter and for us is that Jesus' new life means new life for all of us. And basically, my, my one point that I'm going to be unpacking today is this. Jesus' new life meant new life for Peter and means new life for us. And so we're going to be reading the account that we just watched in that spoken word video, which is going to be in John chapter 21. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you've got them, and we're going to be in verses 1 to 19. What's happened is that... Um, Mary 
um, has gone to the, the tomb and, of, of Jesus and has found that the tomb is empty. And Jesus has already appeared to the disciples twice. Um, he's probably also appeared individually to Peter at this point as well. That story isn't, we just know that that happens because it says so in scripture. We don't know what their topic of conversation was. It might in fact be that they've already had the opportunity to talk about that night and go back to it and, and make amends. But we'll see what Jesus' encounter with Peter is like here. So chapter 21, um, verse 1. Perhaps, Richard, you could click along. It says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Bit of irony there. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. So Jesus is on the beach. The disciples have gone fishing and they see Jesus. Peter puts his outer garment on because he's taken it off to fish and then swims to shore, and then they get this miraculous catch of fish ashore, and Jesus has prepared fish and bread for them to eat, and then Jesus basically has this conversation of restoring relationship, reconciling with Peter. Jesus' new life meant new life for Peter, and means new life for us. And basically what I want to do with the rest of our time is just break down, like, what is this new life like? What does it consist of? And I want to look at how new life is our focusing on Jesus. It's forgiveness from Jesus. 
It's friendship with Jesus and it's following of Jesus. And that's where we're going. And with each of these, I basically want to ask, well, what does this mean? What does this new aspect of our new resurrection life that we've got in Jesus as Christians mean? And then I also want to then turn it into like a, a discipline or a habit. So what does this say about how, wh- how we do what we do with our time, what we do with our week? Um, what does it mean for the kind of habits we want to build into our lives if we're going to experience maximum joy with this life that we have got? So what is this new life that we and Peter have? First of all, this new life is focusing on Jesus. As we said, Peter messed up very, very badly, awfully. So he is lying to Jesus because he says, Jesus, like even if all of these disciples they turn their backs and run away from you. I'm never going to do that. And then he's actually given three occasions on which he's able to say, yes, I am with Jesus. And he denies Jesus all three of these times. He's basically more concerned about himself than he is about um, his being seen with Jesus. He's then cursing, bringing curses down probably on on Jesus as a way of just shaming him. I mean, in that culture of honor and shame, he's basically saying, look, I'm not, I'm not associated at all with this Jesus guy, and I'm going to show you that I'm not associated with him by calling down and just cursing him, shaming him in the, in the strongest way I can. And he's ultimately betrayed his, his best friend um, for the last three or so years. I think with all of these things that Peter has done, though, the lying, the betrayal, the cursing, actually, they're all symptoms of a deeper issue that I think Peter's got. And I think that deeper issue is, is pride. I think Peter loved Jesus. I don't think we could deny that about him. He's the first guy um, to say, Jesus, you are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, but actually, I think lots of the time he's still focused on Peter. He's looking inward rather than looking upward. He's looking to himself rather than he is looking to Jesus. Um, You can see this in a couple of places. First, when he says, like, Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you're spot on. And right, what's going to happen now is I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be scorned by everyone. And I'm going to come back to life. And then the next sentence, just after Peter has made this amazing declaration of who Jesus is, is he then takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. Like to tell Jesus off, like, Jesus, you got this wrong. Okay, you're not... You're not going anywhere. You're not dying, okay, which is, is very surprising. But I think it's because he's looking at himself. He's saying, listen, I don't think that makes sense. Rather than just listening to, to his best friend, his Lord, his Savior, um, we see it um, when he says, you know, all of, these, all of these disciples may leave you, all right? These other 11 guys, okay, actually, I'm the best one. All right, if you think we're going to go, maybe for these 11 people, that, that's true, but I'm the special one, okay? And perhaps that's because, again, he's looking to himself. He thinks, like, well, actually, if I was going to take all of these 12 disciples, like, I'm probably Jesus' favorite. I'm the best one. Um, and actually, he's, he's, he's got this arrogance about him. He's looking to himself. And how much of the time do we do those kinds of things as well? Comparison with other people, comparison in our, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our work skills. I've got this many friends, and that person's got that many friends. And probably we do it in ways that we wouldn't want to share publicly with other people, the ways that we compare and we say, oh, I must be worth something. I must be valuable because of my comparison with these people. He's looking to himself for his identity. His identity ultimately comes from, well, I'm just a great follower of Jesus, and that makes me more significant than these other people. 
And actually, he's got this misplaced love. He ultimately loves his own life more than his relationship with Jesus. And that's proven when ultimately he's asked, are you with Jesus? And he says no three times. The thing is that this is what all of us are like. We've all got this prideful tendency to look in on ourselves and to put ourselves at the center of our lives instead of God. We focus on ourselves rather than on Jesus. It's like if we're going to have a sun that the planets of our life orbit around, that should be Jesus, and we've got a great way of making ourselves that sun. I think probably a good way of working out, have you got an issue with, with pride, with focusing on yourself, is thinking what are the areas of your life where you tend to grumble and complain and feel discontent? Because listen, if you feel discontent or you grumble or complain about your work, let's say, then actually I would say lots of that comes probably because we are looking at ourselves. We've got, I'm the most important thing here, rather than, hey, how can I serve Jesus? In our marriages or in our parenting, if we've got this tendency to grumble and feel aggrieved and like, oh, woe is me, it's probably because we're looking at ourselves rather than looking at Jesus. If we think about church and we tend to think kind of just grumble and complain about it and feel a bit dissatisfied and discontent again it's probably because we're looking at ourselves rather than looking at Jesus and here's the thing focusing on ourselves is not just like a a really those are the verses I should put those up earlier um focusing on ourselves can seem like oh it's just like a silly little thing that we do but actually the thing is we're focusing on ourselves is that it's serious and sad it's serious because it, it, it mocks God. It says, actually, God, I think that the way that I want to do my life is a lot better than the way that you want me to do my life. It says, actually, God, I think I would make a much better center of the universe than you would. And it's just, it's crazy. But we slip into this thinking all the time. And it's also very, very sad because our culture tells us that ultimately what we need more than anything is to, to find who we truly are. It's to lick in and on ourselves but I would argue that the more we look in on ourselves, the more miserable we become. Then actually, I know that the times where I find with church or with my family or with my work, the times where I am most introspective, most what do I want out of this? How does this serve me? How are my talents, my gifts, my time best used? Those are the times where I feel most resentful and most miserable. Actually, it's the times where I then die to myself and say, how can I love and serve the people who I work with, my family, the people I am part of Grace Church with the most. Those are the times then when I feel most joy, most freedom. Uh, Tim Keller calls it the joy of self-forgetfulness. Actually, when we step back from ourselves, we take our eyes off of ourselves and we put our eyes on Jesus, that is when we find ourselves most liberated. And that's what Peter needed to do. I think if you then go and read 1 Peter, the, um, one of the letters that Peter then wrote after Jesus had ascended to heaven. I think, um, I think you would read it and go, this is a, a guy who is not preoccupied with himself anymore. This is a guy who is preoccupied with Jesus. And so then the discipline for us is take some time, perhaps even as I've been speaking, or take time regularly to think, if I'm discontent with something, or if there is some area of my life in which I'm grumbling and complaining, it's worth examining yourself and asking, is this because I'm focusing on myself rather than focusing on Jesus? Where am I discontent? Where do I grumble? And actually, I think we will often find that the answer is that our eyes are looking inward rather than upward. 
So new life means focusing on Jesus, and this is good for us. And new life also means forgiveness from Jesus. So this passage is all about Peter's restoration with Jesus. Um, And actually, it's the good news that he had not blown his friendship with Jesus. I I don't know whether you... um, have ever like felt that experience of just feeling like you've blown it either in a small way or in a big way just that like the chance was there and it's gone I just think it, it is so sad to think about Peter after he denies Jesus for that third time right he said Jesus I'm going with you to the end and I think he probably meant that in a really like he thought he was being devoted saying Jesus I'm going with you I'm going with you and then he denies Jesus three times and then he goes outside and it says and Peter wept and you can just imagine the sobbing that is coming through of him. He, he realises all of this foolishness that he's done. That actually, he's been walking with Jesus for years. He's walked on water. He's seen Jesus walk on water. He's seen Jesus calm storms and bring dead people back to life. And then what happens is he denies Jesus because he, he loves his own skin more than he loves his saviour. Actually, the wonderful thing about this meeting with Jesus on the beach is he knows I haven't blown it. Um, Jesus is kind of bringing him back to thinking about the event. So there's this set of coals, this campfire, which they've gathered around on on the beach. There are only two campfires in the whole of the book of John, right? One is here on the beach, and the other one is on the night that Jesus betrayed, and it's the one that Peter was warming himself by when he denies Jesus. So he's bringing him back here, um, the catch of fish as well. There's one other time in the Gospels where the, there's a miraculous catch of fish. And that is when Peter first decides to follow Jesus. There's this miraculous catch of fish that, that Jesus says, put your, um, put your nets down and there's loads of fish. And then he just says, like, Jesus, away from me. I'm a sinful man. So he's taking him back right to when he first started falling in love with Jesus. And then, of course, there's the three times which Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? do you love me? And it's an opportunity for Peter to undo what happened in a way. So the three times that he said, Jesus, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know you. And now he says, I love you. I love you. I love you. Here's the wonderful thing for us. Our new life means that we can be completely assured of forgiveness from all sins, all bad things that we have ever done. That's just not the things that we are. We probably tend to think most of all about our actions. It's the words that we've spoken. It's the things that we've done as the things that we feel most regret about. And yet there is forgiveness for us from Jesus in this new life for every layer of the sin that we experience. That goes to our thoughts, the thoughts that we would not want to share with anyone else in the entire world, perhaps those even closest to us. It's the, the feelings that we feel in our heart when actually, you know, we feel and we don't feel love for Jesus. We don't feel love for the people that we should. We don't care for people in the way that we should. And yet it's just those layers of sin in our lives, the ones that we're not even aware of, and those are the ones that Jesus covers with his death on the cross. And ultimately, that's because Peter might have called down curses on Jesus, but Jesus has taken the curse that Peter deserves and has taken that curse and died, um, and it has died with him on the cross. And this just means for us that we've got to make a discipline in our lives of asking Jesus for forgiveness. I don't, I don't think in my own life I tend to re- like outwardly say sorry for specific sins like half as much as I should. And I think that's probably an error of perhaps spiritual 
attack. I think it's a way of maybe like the enemy saying, oh, you don't really need to go over those things and say sorry for those and dredge all that up again. But actually, I think that when we come to Jesus and we confess and we say, Jesus, I am sorry for the things that I've, I've done and not done, which are displeasing to you. Those are just wonderful, again, freeing times for us. It's so countercultural, right, that we would focus on Jesus rather than ourselves and find that completely and utterly liberating and freeing. And also that we would look into the darkest parts of ourselves and bring that up and say, Jesus, I am sorry, would you forgive me? And that is, again, good for us. It's liberating for us. Um, I was reading a, a book this week about um, a guy in the Bible called Nehemiah by um, a man called J.R. Paco, who died a couple of years ago. But he, he writes this. He says, Repenting of sin and trusting Christ for forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. This two-sided turning to God is the basic discipline of each day's Christian living. My encouragement for all of us, myself included, is why don't we spend more time like with Jesus on the beach, if you like, and just have that two-sided coin experience of us saying to Jesus, I am sorry for this, 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 naming the things that we need to say sorry for, and then just enjoying Jesus's complete forgiveness of all that we are saying. Those things that actually we are most like, no, but there's a catch here, all right? I think this cannot be forgiven in the way that you say you will. Well, actually, those are the things which Jesus most completely covers with all of his grace. Jesus knows all of our our thoughts, our sinful feelings anyway. Like none of this is shocking him or surprising him. And so actually as we bring it to him, we can just enjoy the experience of being freed from those weights, giving our burdens over to Jesus. So what kind of life? Focusing on Jesus, forgiveness from Jesus, and friendship with Jesus. I am um, I wonder like how you would consider your relationship with Jesus. Right? So if you were going to think, this is Jesus and this is me, what are kind of some of the basic terms that you would use to describe your relationship? Now, those of us who've been in church for a while, we know all the right answers, right? But it's also worth thinking, well, what is genuinely the way that you would say you relate to Jesus? Um, perhaps you kind of are quite, you consider yourself quite formal with Jesus. It kind of seems like a formal relationship. Perhaps it's, it's awkward. Perhaps you feel estranged from Jesus, like Jesus is this person that you used to know and hang out with and have great times with. And actually, recently, you might have been going to church for years, but you still feel like, Jesus, you feel far away from me. Actually, it's really important that we have like, a correct view of our relationship with Jesus, because how we view Jesus will determine how we approach him. Um, there's a quote from a guy called Thomas Goodwin, who lived several hundred years ago, but I've, I've shared it here before, um, but I'll share it again because it is just great. He says, that which keeps us away from Jesus, the thing which keeps us far off from him, is that we know not his mind and heart. And the thing that keeps us away from Jesus is that we don't know his mind and his heart. The, the idea is, well, actually, if we were just to understand more of Jesus's great love and tenderness and gentleness for us, towards us, we would absolutely not be able to keep ourselves away from him. Jesus is showing us in this passage, showing to Peter and showing to us that, that he is our friend, the best friend that you can have. You know, just think, like, he, he calls out to the disciples. He says, friends, have you caught any fish? And then he gets them all together on the beach and then he's made a barbecue for them and they're eating fish and they're eating bread and they're chatting and they're laughing and they're having a good time together. And I wonder, do you think that that's something that you could do with Jesus? 
right? Perhaps in not making us actual fish and bread this side of heaven, but us being able to, to spend time with him, to say, Jesus, like, I know that you're eager to meet with me and I want to be eager to meet with you, so let's enjoy time together. He is our friend in um, John chapter 15. Jesus says, I no longer call you, that's the disciples, and it's, it's Christians more generally, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. Okay, that if you have put your faith in Jesus, Jesus says, you are my friend and I am your friend. If we ask ourselves, like, well, what does, that, what does that involve, right? None of us are perfect friends. Okay, lots of us are probably quite substandard friends um, like me. I put myself first among those. Um, if you've ever not received a WhatsApp reply from me, you will know that probably I'm, I'm yeah, not a great person to generally hang out with. But if we were going to ask, like, what, what does a friendship consist of? I would be thinking, first of all, like mutual love and enjoyment of each other, isn't it? It's, you enjoy spending time with each other. And maybe you might not turn to your friend, perhaps us guys, all right, and say, like, can I just say that I really love you, friend? Like, maybe we don't actually talk like that, but actually that is what's going on, isn't it? We do feel like an affection and a love for our friends, whether we would care to admit that or not. And yet this is what Jesus experiences towards us. That We know that when we come to worship Jesus on a Sunday morning, when we come to open our Bible to pray, to speak with him, to gather and take communion like we're going to be doing in a few moments' time, we know that we can have the assurance Jesus loves us and then we are sharing that love with him. Or conversation, that's a key aspect of friendship, isn't it? Probably like all of our friends, we would say, well, we, we talk to them or have talked to them or are going to spend some time talking to them in the future. And again, do you, what, when you come to pray, like, what is your view of how Jesus feels towards you then? Because actually, I think if we are coming to Jesus and coming to speak to him, and we know, actually, Jesus, I'm speaking with you like a friend, and we're talking, and I know that I want to hear from you, and you want to hear from me, then what a great way to approach prayer, like conversationally, like as if we were just hanging out with our best friend. And also time, right? Friendships flourish when we give them time. We can't build a friendship without spending time with someone else. And actually, the, the thing is that we can also take the opportunity to spend time with Jesus. Now, often that is like distilled into what we might call like a quiet time, or it's sometimes called devotions, or like time alone with Jesus. Basically, like maybe reading the Bible and, and praying or listening to a worship song. But hey, we can take spending time with our friend Jesus into all parts of our life. If you're going for a walk somewhere in, in the woods later today, then you can just look and say, Jesus, you made all of this. How wonderful. I just want to enjoy this, this tree or this grass, this sunshine, this rain, this thunderstorm as a way of, of spending time with you and enjoying you. Um, I, lo- I love reading books. And I, often I just want to pause when I, I say often. I remind myself that I should just pause with a book if I'm reading something and just go like, God, thank you, God, for how much I'm enjoying this novel or just something that I've thought about and just say, well, actually, Jesus, this points me in a way more directly to you. Just find those times. Where are the times where you love to spend time with Jesus and get more of those in your life? And ultimately, that's the discipline of friendship with Jesus. It's saying, hey, what can I get in my diary? Things that I'm going to do, which I know are going to help me to walk more closely, to enjoy Jesus's friendship more. New life is focusing on Jesus, forgiveness from Jesus, friendship with Jesus, and finally is following of Jesus. Um, Jesus has this conversation with Peter where he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then Peter responds, yes, I, I love you, Lord. And then Jesus' response to him is, is feed my sheep. 
take care of my lambs, feed and take care of my flock. Um, and basically what Jesus is calling him to is to look after the, you know, the early Christians. Peter in a few weeks' time is going to be standing up filled with the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and is going to be preaching and 3,000 people, is it three or 5,000? I can't remember. It's thousands, three. It's five. Well, so it's three to start with. There's thousands, though. Okay, so thousands of people get saved. And then um, Peter's going to be in, in charge of just leading these early Christians and taking care of them. Here's the thing. When we love Jesus, Jesus calls us to follow him and to obey him and serve him. That's how, what we do with that outworking of our love. We start with that place of friendship with Jesus. Jesus, I know that you are my friend. You've called me to be your friend. We can enjoy talking with each other. I can enjoy your forgiveness and focusing on you. And then that becomes like an outworking of love to the people who we live around. The outworking of our love for Jesus is obedience to him. And he calls Peter and he calls all of us, follow me. Come on an adventure with me in loving the world and making my glory, my gospel known to, um, to everyone. Here's the thing for us. Now, some, we are all called to love the flock, love other sheep. Now, we're all sheep, okay? So we're, if we're a Christian, part of um, a church together, then we would be that sheep that Jesus is talking about. And so we are all called to love in different ways each other, but it's about finding ways that we can serve other people and, and love them as Jesus has loved us in whatever walk of life we are in. I think um, if we're going to learn two things from what Jesus says to Peter, it would be that um, following him and loving him involves service and sacrifice. So service, that's the bit where Jesus says, listen, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, feed my lambs. And so that serving part for us is, is not just distilling serving into something we just do because we're on a team as, on a Sunday morning as part of church, but actually how can we serve people in all, um, in all walks of life, in our family, in our workplaces, with our friendships, with our housemates, um, with our neighbours. Um, I love one of my favourite pastimes is to go and look at second-hand books. Um, and this is one of my favorite things to do. It's just a wonderful thing. Some of you are nodding because you know the joy of going and looking at secondhand books. Some of you are like perplexed, right? You need to go to some charity shops and go and look at some secondhand books, okay? It's great. Um, but I found a, a book just randomly in it. It was in a Christian secondhand bookshop. And um, it was called Celebration of Discipline by a guy called Richard, Fo Richard Foster. Um, and he's, a, he's a, a Quaker. And he basically said something which stuck with me. He said... Um, that often when we think of service, we think of those great acts of service. We think of the big things that we can do. They're kind of above and beyond. But he says actually embracing a life of service is about embracing the small, seemingly insignificant stuff that we do. You know, service, serving Jesus, it consists 95% of the time in, in doing the washing up, in being gentle with our children, in sending a text to a friend that we haven't spoken to in a while that we know they will appreciate in going above and beyond in our workplaces to be able to bless those who lead us or serve those who we lead. Actually, it's about finding all of those opportunities to put our love for Jesus into action by serving others. Um, and it's also sacrificial. Peter is told by Jesus after he's been instructed, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Jesus then says to him, find it again. 
He then says, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Um, People reading that verse think that Jesus is ultimately talking about Jesus, well, he is talking about Peter's death because he says that, which would ultimately by him being crucified. And church legend has it that he was crucified upside down, Peter, because he didn't want to be killed in the same way that Jesus was. Ultimately, Jesus is saying to him, listen, I'm calling you to follow me as part of this new life and to serve me, but it's going to cost you. Actually, the thing that we can be 100% sure of is that as followers of Jesus, it's going to cost us in living a life of following him, focusing on him, and then outworking that love for him in service to other people in our lives. But we can be sure that it's going to be worth it. And the discipline for us is to hey, find ways, even today, that we can just find those small, insignificant, unseen ways that we can show kindness to others, actually as a way of us outworking our love for Jesus, outworking what he has called us to. Jesus' new life meant new life for Peter and means new life for us. I'm going to invite um, Pete and Lou back up because we're going to take communion. Um, now, depending on how many church events you've been to in the last week, you might have taken communion quite a few times. It was working it between Good Friday and this morning and last Sunday um, and Life Group with Richard and Rosie on Thursday. This will be the fourth time of taking communion in eight days, which I think is a personal record. Um, it probably it's three times in eight days for, for lots of us. But the amazing thing is that that is so good. It's so good for us to come to the table and take communion together. Because what, we, what happens when we come and we have the bread and we have the wine together is that we are being reminded again and again and again of this new life which Jesus has won for us. Reminding that we have complete forgiveness from him, that we can enjoy friendship with him. And so we're going to come in a moment and take the bread and wine and just enjoy Jesus's new life that he has given us together. When um, the disciples get to the beach, um, it then says, if I can read to you, Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And for me, that just echoes the night before Jesus died, the night when Peter was going to betray him. Um, where Jesus, um, it says, took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps if we could just stand, I'm just going to pray for us before we take the bread and wine together. And I want you to see this as an opportunity as we come and take the bread and the wine. It's an opportunity to enjoy that friendship with Jesus. As we've been saying this morning, as we've been coming and as we've been worshipping, that Jesus is, is here and is present with us. And actually, it might be that you feel all fired up this morning and you're just so excited that it is Easter Sunday and we're celebrating the resurrection and you just can't wait to, to take communion and spend that time talking with Jesus. Or it might be for a whole multitude of reasons that you just feel like you're, you're counted out from that that actually you're going to come and take the bread and wine but whether that's your your own failures like Peter that feel that they are stopping you from coming to him whether that's because you just don't truly believe that Jesus's heart towards you is is what Jesus says it is that he this morning is your is your friend that he he loves you 
and loves to spend time with you and for you to spend time with him. And so we're just going to, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to get the bread and wine. We're going to bring it back and you can either just take it individually or as a, with someone just next to you or if you want to, to make a group with some people and just pray together and then you can. It's up to you. Just freedom in how we're going to take communion this morning. But don't miss the opportunity to come and, and say, Jesus, I'm meeting with you. I'm going to come and enjoy your forgiveness, your grace. Jesus, we just feel in awe of your love that none of us here are in any way deserving of your love and your affection for us. We are in no way deserving of your grace. Like Peter, we have, we have sinned against you in a multitude of ways. And all we deserve from you, Jesus, is, is for you to turn away from us and not have anything to do with us. And yet, that is not what you have chosen. You chose to go to the cross and take our sin and our shame and Peter's shame with you and die and rise again so that we can experience new life in you. We can experience your forgiveness, experience your friendship, conversation, fellowship with you. Jesus, we're just asking that as we take communion, help us to encounter you. Pray for those of us who are we're feeling that hardness of heart towards you. Just pray that you come by your Holy Spirit and soften our hearts so that we can meet with you this morning, Lord. We love to enjoy your presence. Amen. Oh,